RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, it is Wednesday morning here at RCR, of course, and that's time for our legal hub. And joining us again this morning, going solo again, because Katie's got another prior engagement uh, important uh, for her to attend. So Nick Kearney is with me again, just Nick, and we'll have Katie back next week. Uh, Nick, good to have you back again. Yeah, good morning, Paul. How are you? And uh, good morning to uh, to all your listeners as well. Yeah, boy, didn't that week go quick? Okay, um, we got a few things that we can get our teeth into. Um, first up, um, and this is something that's been on the minds of quite a few people since this policy, which will probably never be enacted, but is there for a, a dangling a carrot that might may or may not attract GST in front of um, the um, the voters, and that is to um, take GST off. I think it's fresh fruit, fresh and frozen fruit and vegetables, is as how I think it's it's been described. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've always heard that that was too difficult to do. You know, that was always too hard, right? And, th- and this is legally one of one of the issues that um, that, that arises when uh, you know you try and put in place carve outs or exceptions or exemptions to what is a very uh, simple uh, tax uh, tax law process. So, um, you know, at the moment we know GST is is essentially uh, charged uh, on every piece of consumer item that is bought and sold uh, throughout the country. Uh, and uh, the Labor Party intends to make fresh fruit and vegetables and frozen, I think, vegetables, although I don't know if they've said that frozen fruit will be GST-free. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, now we're already getting complicated. Well, that's right, because, uh, well, I suppose suppose that they've said fresh fruit uh, is um, is GST, well, proposed to be GST-free if there's the next government, as from April next year or May next year. Uh, they haven't said frozen fruit, but uh, what you know? What and this is my point. I'm coming to shortly. What if uh, a uh, I guess a supermarket has a bunch of frozen fruit and decides to freeze it uh, because they can preserve its life or to repackage it and then non-sell it? So anyway, this is a sort of anomaly that that we, you do start to get into. And and from a legal perspective, uh, it's actually. I mean, I you know as a lawyer, I probably should uh, fully support this because it'll provide me with enough work uh, for the next ten years that I that'll keep me happy. Um, yeah. Even though, even though I don't do uh, tax law, I'm sure I can make a bit of a living out of it if I wanted to. And uh, just, just uh, to give the example, I'll give an example. Uh, a month or two back, there was uh, a case that came out of Australia uh, in the um, one of the uh, district courts there, but it's the Taxation and Commercial Division of one of the uh, district courts, and it's a specialised tax court, uh, court where parties who want to dispute the commissioner's interpretation of tax laws can take uh, the commissioner to, to, to court and say, you know, we challenge that. Uh, and, and this is what this food producer did here in terms of GST. And the situation here was that there was a, a company called uh, Chobani, uh, and Chobani uh, sells or sold a range uh, of flip products. Uh, and flip products uh, is basically, you know, yogurt, but inside the yogurt is uh, chopped up uh, nuts and a bit of chocolate bits and pieces, okay? So all packaged up together, uh, and it was kind of just uh, sold as a a single product. In in 2021, the commissioner advised Chobani that uh, he would be changing his earlier view that supplies of the flip range of products they sold uh, are GST-free, but that change uh, would, you know, would be implemented prospectively and not retrospectively, obviously. 
And Chobani decided, well, that's, that shouldn't be the case, and they took the uh, commissioner to court to get a ruling on the court. And the issue in front of the court um, here in, uh, I think it was New South Wales, actually, but doesn't really matter, somewhere in Australia, Brisbane, here we go, so Queensland, was whether the supply of the Chobani flipped strawberry shortcake flavoured yoghurt <laughs> is GST-free, where the flavoured yoghurt sold was sold with a blend of dry ingredients and where these dry ingredients comprise cookie pieces and chocolate chips. Such a dry ingredients, these cookie pieces and chocolate chips, are intended to be flipped into flavoured yoghurt by the consumer. In other words, you you know you get a little separate package and you tuck them into the yogurt and you flavour it all up. Right. And uh, and the question was whether this product is a combination of one or more foods, at least one of which is biscuit goods or confectionery or food of such of a kind, uh, which means it's a combination and therefore uh, it is not uh, GST exempt. Well, so uh, you know that might produce a bit of laughter and a bit of uh, confusion or some eye opening. Um, things from listeners, but this is one of the problems you get, I suppose, if you want to call it a problem. Again, you know, from a lawyer, um, I think it's probably a reasonably good idea <laughs> because it will keep us very busy and it will keep well, tax accountants very busy as well. But one of the reasons from a legal perspective of why really we should not be mucking with uh, the GST rules on food or anything for that nature because it just opens up a whole division of litigation by food producers and others uh, supermarkets um, and, and and others, consumers perhaps even, who will you know uh, want to try and prove various various points around um, around the law in terms of the GST exempt status of, of the food product. So yeah, it's it's not ideal. It's you know from a legal perspective, uh, it creates a bit of a bit of confusion and, and a bit of a nightmare. Uh, and you just you know lawyers um, lawyers kind of get wealthy out of it, I suppose. So maybe I shouldn't complain for, but it's just one of those things that I just think we shouldn't be mucking with. But again, you know, the voters, I guess, will decide uh, in a couple of months' time. Though if you were in that um, that appeal or that court hearing that you just described, trying to argue on behalf of yoghurt with crushed up bickies and white chocolate, you'd, you'd wonder what your career had come to, wouldn't you? <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd wonder whether you could keep a straight face doing that, wouldn't you? You would. And, you know, just thinking about the example you you gave earlier with the frozen, I mean, you you could let frozen blueberries thaw, and then you've got non-frozen blueberries, right? I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous. It it, it is ridiculous. And and I just wonder in that court case, and I don't know because I haven't read it uh, line for line, I just wonder whether they took some samples into the court. (laughs) <laughs> to, to, to show the judge, you know, this is what we're referring to, Your Honour, you see, and here, here's the yoghurt, and what you do is you get the chips over here and you put it in, and, and, and this this all takes up not just lawyers' time, but administrative people in the court's time, judges' time, you know, it registra- court registrar's time, uh, and money and cost and everything. So, you know, that's what regulation or bad regulation or poor policy uh, does. It just uh, it just uh, adds to the regulatory cost of, this, of, of the economy. Basically, the economy, really. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a knee-jerk uh, thing. Um, there are probably other ways to make food cheaper. You could, you know, subsidize, pay the supermarket if you're the government, fifteen um, percent on every uh, purchase, maybe. Yeah, well, That's I it. would rather focus on, on on the opposite side of it. Really, we're getting a bit off topic. But I'd rather focus on trying to make people wealthy rather than trying to make things cheaper. Yeah, and then of course there are other staple foods that, for some reason, aren't included. 
Like, you know, meat's very good for you. I had this look. I had this uh, discussion with somebody on Twitter during the week, and I said, You know, I used to do a lot of running, and my feet get quite painful. I'd quite like food for dietary. Can we get that? You know, and even at my age as well, I look at you, Paul, you know, and you've got these glasses. I need some glasses shortly. Well, glasses are pretty important. Can we have, uh, you know, GST free or, or free optometry as well or something? So, yeah. It does. It does become a uh, an issue of you know political expediency and to be avoided. Hopefully, well, well, apparently, red wine's good for the heart. Uh, apparently, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take the GST off that. Um, well, look, there's plenty of things that are, that are good for you. I mean, you know, if you follow certain dietary prescriptions, like the keto diet might be pretty good for you. Well, as I was thinking about meat. But the vegan diet is pretty good. You know, it's, it's cheese isn't a vegetable uh, or, or fruit, is it? You know, but but cheese and eggs are pretty good for you. A lot of protein in eggs. Yeah. You know? Uh, you know, so there we go. And you look at quite a few of those members of parliament, and you know they 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 could probably go a bit harder on the fruit and vegetables. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, or or, or less no, with the yogurt and the and the crushed up biscuits. Or perhaps or, less hard on some of the other stuff they eat at Bellamy's. Yeah, or the sausage rolls, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay, all right. So there's that. Let's um, move on to our next uh, topic, and that is behaviour outside of the workplace. Though, <clears throat> and I'm trying to think of what sort of behaviour that would be. There are the obvious ones, but behaviour outside of the workplace that could bring the workplace or the company or the employer into some kind of disrepute. So how wide-ranging is that these days now? And what are some of the examples that have happened here that sort of inform us about this? Yeah, so this is an interesting topic, I think, because it's become relevant over the last few years, particularly in the COVID era, through some of the cases taken against professionals, particularly, I suppose, doctors, and even the odd lawyer, Sue Gray, of course, a little bit relevant in those cases because what you have is you have people who are speaking kind of in their uh, individual capacity or their, you know, they've got personal knowledge, they've got experience that they're professionals and they have um, some sort of expertise. Um, so they either say something outside of the workplace that perhaps brings the uh, the workplace or the employer uh, into disrepute or they do something that perhaps uh, has, has the same effect. And um, you know, I think now more than ever, the boundaries between, you know, a person's working life and personal life can be somewhat uh, blurred. You know, we've got um, so much capacity capacity now on our phones to uh, be connected to the world and to say things on, on social media and to, and to do things, you know, uh, on social media uh, through videos or make comments on blogs or whatever that, um, you know, it, it, it brings into play the distinction between someone or an employee's uh, personal life and what they're doing in their personal capacity, as I as I do here, of course, with, with you and, and the radio station, uh, and and their work life, and whether you know the conduct that the person does uh, in their personal life, uh, as I said earlier, uh, can bring uh, the employer uh, into disrepute and therefore affect their employment status. Uh, you know, so from the employer's perspective, you know, they need to bear in mind that uh, that employees. Uh, are entitled to personal lives uh, and the protection of their personal information, um, uh, and and they'll, they'll likely employers be you know quite upset and and annoyed uh, by uh, employers passing judgment on their personal affairs outside of the workplace. Um, 
But on the other hand, you know, uh, em- employees also need to uh, consider that there's just not a free reign outside the workplace to do what they want. Uh, there, has, there has to be uh, boundaries as with anything. Now, one of the leading cases on all of this is a Court of Appeal case uh, from 2001 where the Court of Appeal said that, that there must be a clear relationship between the conduct and the employment. Uh, it's not so much a question of where the conduct occurs, but rather its impact or potential impact on the employer's business uh, whether that is because the business may be damaged in some way or because the conduct is incompatible with the proper discharge of the employee's duty uh, because it actually impacts upon the employer's obligations to other employees, uh, etc. So in other words, um, employee actions that occur uh, outside the workplace and, and the working hours can be subject to disciplinary action if those actions reasonably undermine the trust and confidence in the employment relationship, which are the two uh, fundamental uh, obligations that both parties actually have in the employment relationship, uh, the fiduciary um, or the fiduciary duties of, of, of trust and confidence. Um, now, there was another leading case uh, from 2013 uh, where there was a, a Forsyth Bar a senior um, broker analyst who um, was convicted of causing grievous bodily harm. Um, following a highly publicised um, media uh, publicity um, road rage incident in, in which he drove over uh, another motorist while taking his daughter to an appointment. And Forsyth Bar dismissed uh, him uh, and the employment court found that to be justifiable. Um, his actions gave rise to extensive media coverage which referred to him um, referred to his position and referred to where he worked, all that sort of stuff. So they considered all of that was sufficient to um, to um, dismiss him from his job. So, and just to, you know, in my, in my aspect of work, um, you know, I do a lot of uh, a lot of property work. I, I remember, um, you know, I, I do a lot of work for real estate agents, and uh, when, when the new I knew it's not new anymore, but when the Real Estate Agents Act in 2008 came into being, um, you know, agents at that time under the new law uh, were subject to quite quite stronger penalties in terms of the activities they were performing as agents. But it was only meant to be when they were performing their role as an agent, uh, which kind of um, starts when they're meant to be marketing or advertising a property or working for a vendor to try and sell a property. Um, uh, but there was a, there was a quite a um, kind of a um, interesting situation uh, some years ago, um, probably six or seven years ago, where a real estate agent was misbehaving in a bar in South Auckland. Uh, and, you know, it was... Um, I think he was uh, partaking in recreational drugs and a bit drunk and made some lewd comments to a, a lady, if I recall. He, he, they went out to a car park and he offered this lady some, I think, some recreational drugs um, and she declined. Uh, he gave her his business card, if I recall, um, and she said, you ever need any real estate work? You know you know where to find me. Well, she made, or I think, this, I think it was a lady, but anyway, the person made a complaint to the Real Estate Agents Tribunal, who found this agent, um, uh, I guess, guilty of unsatisfactory conduct. And the interesting thing, from my perspective, was that, look, uh, the agent never appealed the decision. I think they just took their medicine, uh, literally, and moved on. But the interesting thing, from my perspective, was that 
the agent was not taking part in any real estate agent work whatsoever, uh, was in his or her own time socialising. Look, were they misbehaving? Were lewd things said? Were they, should they not have been partaking in recreational drugs? Well, who knows? Maybe yes, maybe not. Who are we to judge about what, you know, someone's behaviour should or should not be uh, in, in public? If, if it is not affecting that person's role um, as a real estate agent or perhaps as somebody else, then should they be, you know, should they be complained against uh, and, and face those sort of uh, actions? So, Anyway, that, those sorts of uh, issues are, you know, are, are around and alive. And um, I just thought, with with the current uh, cases, I suppose, or the current commentary around some of the doctors who have faced uh, similar uh, punishment uh, by the medical council for their uh, comments on on COVID. And indeed, of course, last week we talked about uh, Sue Gray, uh, and and Sue. Uh, you know, made, uh, you know, what she did, uh, campaigned uh, against um, the COVID rules and all that sort of stuff. And someone complained uh, complained to the Law Society about about what she said uh, and thankfully the Law Society saw sense there and, and issued a good decision, I thought. Uh, but again, you know, she was making, um, if she wasn't acting as a lawyer, she was acting as an individual person, I suppose. And I guess that raises the question of, you know, how many hats does a person have to wear or or how many hats does a person wear in these sorts of situations? Yeah. Um, you were talking about that case in the early 2000s, and maybe it was a little different then. That was a physical thing that happened. It seems now that the, um, you know, that uh, there's a lot wider scope to be have an accusation of, of bringing a business uh, into disrepute because of, the social media aspect now. So if you express an opinion that's not necessarily related to the business, but you can be identified as being associated with the business, that that is kind of a newer problem, isn't it? Uh, it, it is. Uh, and I, I pause there for a minute because I focus on the word problem. And I guess we have to be very careful uh, in this country that it does not become a problem. Yeah, and, and that people can actually be free to sort of, you know, uh, offer opinions, tweet something out, make a comment on Facebook or some other social media platform, or or put a photo on Instagram that might, you know, might be a little bit, you know, someone might find a little bit uh, upsetting or offensive or something, uh, and everybody, uh, you know, then jumps on the bandwagon and says, "Oh, this person's an accountant," or "I'll complain to the chartered accountant." Yeah, well, you know. I think I think we're becoming a little bit precious as, as a society, but I guess it's the way it is. And um, you know, I guess for people, for listeners, they might need to just perhaps uh, stop, breathe, and think, as I say, before they push send on that uh, device they have. Yeah, good point. Um, and I suppose you know, if people pile in and, and associate an individual with a business, then that business may have a problem. Uh, well, I mean, there is a saying, isn't there, that that that, that all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> okay, y you know, and, and you kind of think that. Well, um, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, the business could have a problem, uh, and you know, I, I guess some some business owners might say, "Well, actually, you know, I'm 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 not worried about what you've said or what you've done," and others might get extremely uh, upset by it and consider their whole, uh, all they've worked for over 20 years if they're at risk or something, well, maybe it just takes some calm heads there to try and uh, cool a few things down. But, yeah, 
you know, I, I just think it's, it's worth uh, reiterating yeah, for um, sure. that, that distinction uh, as well. And, you know, look, I go back to the talk about that case with that real estate agent, and I think that person was uh, really um, harshly done by. I don't think what they were doing in their personal life should have any bearing or impact on whether they should be, uh, uh, you know, complained against as a, as a real estate agent uh, or not because it was just completely in their, in their private life. And whether the person handed out a business card or not, I just think was a bit... A bit rough, but uh, that's kind of the way it is. Is that the tenuous link that was made between a private uh, a time and a business, the, the act of handing over the business card? That made it business in the end, did it? Well, potentially, yeah, I suppose it might have, yeah. Mm. And for someone to complain and get and put someone in a position that they lose their job over that, I mean, you got to ask well, but, well, about well, motivations I- for that too. That's a bit brutal. Look, and I, I, I hesitate to say that I'll just raise the, the spectrum of possibility here that um, you know that that person uh, may well have known uh, another competing uh, uh, real estate agent who thought, well, here's my chance to get one over one of my competitors here. Oh, I you see. Know, okay, <laughs> quite quite possibly. I don't know, but you know, I, you know, um, it's. I think it's. Um, it is that that sort of environment. I mean, the real estate there's an element of a dog eat dog atmosphere to it. You know, why am I not surprised? Okay, because they're all, they're, all, look, they're all fighting over the same product, which is houses to sell. And if there's one less agent competing to get that listing, then it's to, to the benefit of the others. Take know? them out. Just take, take them out. out. Take them out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Collateral damage. Okay. So um, let's move on because we're sort of in that zone now, and there are two cases that we can talk about. And I've had um, uh, one of these uh, people on um, my program, and Pete Williams had um, the other person on uh, his program. I'm talking about Dr. Alison Goodwin. Um, We can talk about uh, a win for her uh, against the Medical Council and then a hearing that's undergoing into Dr. Sam Bailey. So Hmm. what do we make of, of these two cases? Of course, they're quite similar. Um, Alison Goodwin uh, has had a success in that she appealed a decision of the medical council that found against her in relation to uh, comments and statements and uh, videos she had made uh, in relation to uh, the pandemic. Uh, and the medical council decided that you know that was uh, unprofessional of her. She had no right to say and do those things or whatever. Uh, well, uh, she appealed that uh, and just. Uh, I think two or three days ago, uh, I think it's the High Court because that's where the appeal would go, I presume, from the tribunal, which is the Medical Council. Uh, the med- I just see here very um, a very brief note, and I haven't found the detail yet, but the, but the appeal by her um, has been allowed, and, and pursuant to Section 106 of the Act, the Medical Council Act or whatever the legislation is, uh, the decision of the Medical Council uh, was reversed. Um, and that again, it's a, it's a, it's a very pleasing a very pleasing result, obviously. Yeah. So what what uh, Dr. Goodwin was accused originally of doing uh, was that she, you know, following uh, various presentations and public speaking engagements, uh, some anonymous members of the public and actually anonymous fellow health professionals reported her to the medical council for spreading misinformation in relation to the vaccine and COVID itself. Uh, but there were no patient complaints and no demonstration by her patients or any patients, for that matter, uh, of any harm that she had caused. 
So really, we go back to the point again we've been discussing about uh, a person's uh, comments or statements that they were made, uh, and particularly here, um, uh, you know, the complaints that were made against this doctor were that she was spreading uh, misinformation. Yeah, well, that's uh, interesting because th th there seems to be so much confusion about information now that anyone who, who can accurately label information as misinformation. I mean, even that's a bit of a long stretch of the bow, isn't it? There's so much conflicting information. Um, you know, opinions aren't necessarily misinformation, are they? Yeah, so from a legal perspective, the interesting, interesting thing about uh, experts is uh, unlike um, other witnesses who give evidence in, in court, those inverted commas are normal witnesses. Uh, give evidence as to the facts, as to what they saw or what they heard or what someone said to them, etc. Okay, uh, but uh, but experts don't uh, give evidence as to the facts. They give evidence as to their opinion on a certain scientific matter. For example, in a you know in a homicide trial, uh, a pathologist will give expert evidence as to the cause of death in that pathologist's opinion. Uh, and um, I remember, you know, the famous case uh, with with Mark Lundy. There were experts who were called in that in that trial, who gave evidence uh, in relation to the contents of uh, I think it was McDonald's food in the yeah. stomach, mac and cheeseburger, Ma yeah. a big mac and a cheeseburger. How long it, it possibly, you know, hadn't been digested for, or had been digested for, because it sat in the in the stomach or whatever of I think. Um, Mrs. Lundy, Christine, I think. So, or maybe the baby, not sure. It doesn't matter. Um, so, uh, you know, my point is that uh, experts give evidence as to their opinion, not as to facts. And almost always there's a countering expert giving evidence for the defence to the expert. We've just, look, we've just seen that in that horrible trial of that, uh, and I call it horrible because it's involved those you know, three young, beautiful babies who were... Um, who, who were murdered by their mother in Christchurch, and you had two separate experts uh, giving their opinion as to whether potentially, you know, the lady, the uh, accused, was insane or not. So experts, um, you know, you, you talk, lawyers are meant to be experts. Lawyers turn up in, in some cases and give, give uh, opinion evidence as to certain legal matters, and there's always a bit of a, you know, I, I find there's always a bit of a joke, uh, I, I like to say, about lawyers, that you get three lawyers in the room and ask them a question, you get three different answers. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. And, and that's because they've all got different views on things, because their opinions differ, because of the way they interpret, you know, the, the law. And, they, and and doctors are, are absolutely no different. Absolutely no different. And in fact, scientists and doctors, we should be encouraging as much as possible to test uh, the science and to offer uh, their views to counter the expert or opinion views of others, and not—I mean, it, it's not just—and not just, you know, I guess fall over or lie over and and believe uh, everything that one particular expert says. That is just, you know, if we did that, we'd never have any advancements in medical science or science at all. Uh, and and so, poor Dr. Goodwin decided that, in fact, she, um, you know, could give her opinion uh, on on some aspects of COVID. Uh, and the efficacy of the vaccines and whatever else, 
um, and she was taken to task uh, for it. Uh, she was held liable by the Medical Council uh, and found, I guess, guilty or liable, but then has, it looks like I'm just going through my notes here, that she actually appealed to the District Court and it was the District Court that have overturned, I think, the Medical Council decision. So, look, I guess, you know, we'll see if the Medical Council takes us to the High Court, but for the moment, it's it's a win for Dr. Goodwin, and um, and you know I think we should we should be celebrating that. They why would they want to take that further? That would just be bloody mindedness, wouldn't it? Well, I, I think look when you've got putting my my lawyer hat on, um, you know if, if 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 medical counsel came to me and said, "Do we have grounds to appeal this decision? Can you read it and uh, give us some advice on whether there are grounds to appeal?" Um, I wouldn't be you know. Um, going anywhere near bloody mindedness, it would be strict. It would be strict legal analysis, of course. Um, whether whether the client decides, you know, uh, on your advice, no, I don't think there's grounds to appeal this. I don't think you, you'll be successful. Uh, if the client says, "Thank you for your advice, but I'll go ahead anyway," then that's the that's the role of the lawyer to go ahead and file the appeal. And and if the client, you know, medical counsel here decides, well, I actually want to try and prove a point, even though I may not win. Um, you know, the lawyer's got a specific role to actually go into bat for their client and, and try as hard as they can to get the result. Okay, then. So, um, and, and also, I think uh, you mentioned when you're kind of reading uh, the details earlier that uh, one of the problems the medical council had with Dr. Goodwin is that she was, what, undermining undermining confidence in, in what was it, the, the vaccine specifically? Yeah, well, one of the things that, that Dr. Goodwin tried to do was she was concerned about the patient's rights to informed consent. Right. And, of course, that you know that was a very major issue with, um, with, with, the, with the mandated vaccine, obviously. Um, and so she started speaking out about, about the risks uh, of the vaccine, the alternatives to the vaccine, uh, and the uncertainties that surrounded it, which is... Um, which is a requirement by uh, a doctor um, for a patient, you know, when they're trying to uh, give their patients uh, advice so that the patient can have truly informed consent as to the medicine that they are about to to give them or they are recommending. So um, Dr. Goodwin thought it was kind of her role uh, in her capacity as, as a doctor to actually uh, try and educate the public about these issues so that the public at large, I guess not any particular patient, but the public, could have uh, informed consent on the efficacy uh, of the vaccine and the way in which it was being administered, etc. cetera. Um, and and that, that mostly involved bringing people's attention to various official documents that uh, MedSafe had put out, that Pfizer had put out, um, and other things about um, perhaps, uh, you know, um, alternatives like uh, vitamin D or the Health and Disability, Health and Disability Commission's Code of Code of Rights and, and a, a couple of clauses in there that she encouraged people to read. Um, she, she, you know, other, other, other safety sort of, uh, and alternatives, alternative medicines, I suppose, to to the vaccine to the vaccine so that's yeah. that, that's that's what she did um she discussed topics apparently and i haven't look and i haven't seen any of her 
um, videos or any anything that she has put out. I, I just haven't. Um, there's you know haven't had the time. There's too much out there, I suppose, to do. Not enough time in the day. But uh, you know, reading from my the, the report I've got in front of me, she also discussed topics such as general health and immunity, medical ethics, P PCR testing. Uh, and and the use of behavioural psychology to augment compliance uh, with the mandated vaccine. So, look, I mean, on the one hand, you could argue that she takes a, a um, the the oath, uh, Hippocratic oath, right, uh, and swears an oath to uphold certain standards according to her uh, medical uh, degree and her background and her qualifications. And I think for people like her, she obviously thought so strongly about it that she had to adhere to her Hippocratic Oath uh, and try and educate people uh, on these matters. Um, and you know, and I do say sadly, with, with, with some sadness actually, you know, she's been absolutely uh, hauled over the coals because of it, and so have others. Yeah, so, so this whole concept of, of um, undermining confidence in either the medical establishment or in the vaccine, well... What's wrong with that? I mean, it's not written on a stone tablet that anyone has to have confidence in doctors or, you know, they have to earn that, don't they? I just go back to the point I made about um, all experts having uh, or experts having different opinions. And so she's an expert. She's a doctor, you know, uh, and she's entitled to have an opinion on the health benefits uh, of the vaccine and the way to treat uh, a virus such as COVID. Now, the issue here, I, I suppose, from, you know, if I go back to my example, uh, I'm talking about the legal trials, is you've got another set of experts put on by, you know, or um, uh, paid for, I suppose, by the Crown, by the state, through the Medical Council, through the Ministry of Health, uh, and all that, who offer different views. And they say, no, 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 we, we believe this. We've got the look, the FDA in America has said this, and, and you know, we've got all these trials. We know there were no trials. Uh, but, you know, our our expert view is this, and Dr. Ashley Bloomfield would, was very good at selling the, you know, expert opinion. Our experts say this. Well, this doctor says, well, I'm an expert, and I'm saying that. Um, it's that's, that's what experts do. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, and as I go back to my point I made, you get, you know, three lawyers in a room and ask them a legal question, you'll probably get three different answers. And, and it's for people, I guess, you know, well, who's right and who's wrong? Well, um, in some respects, people need to judge the uh, views for themselves and decide what, what they want to do, you know? Okay, let's move on to the other case, and that is um, it's sort of in motion at the moment, the hearing in Christchurch. Well, I think it's in Christchurch anyway. The doctor is from Christchurch, and that is Sam Bailey. And uh, just looking at a story in the press from um, yesterday, Christchurch doctor's COVID videos problem, a problematic tribunal told. This kind of has a weird feel to it. Do you think that? Well, I've, look, I've only got um, I've got very little information on um, Dr. Bailey's uh, hearing before the uh, the medical or the health practitioners disciplinary tribunal. Yeah, uh, that's going on at the moment in Christchurch. Apart from 
uh, an article in the press, the Christchurch Press, uh, from uh, yesterday, I think it was, August 15th. Uh, she's accused by the tribunal of sharing um, inverted commas, highly inaccurate videos about COVID-19. And between, I think, March 2020 and July 2021, so the period of, what, 15, 16 months or something, she um, produced and published on social media 23 videos, which the uh, tribunal says were, uh, and, of course, allegedly, because they're not proven uh, yet, uh, and I'll come to that in a minute, uh, allegedly inaccurate, misleading, or, uh, and here's the concerning um, aspect of it, uh, inappropriate. Now, um, and I say that uh, allegedly because the charges still have to be proved, and from what I can ascertain, Dr. Bailey is not providing a defence. She's not uh, defending the charges um, at all, and I, and I don't know why, but, but but the article doesn't say why, and, and she's not. Now, it's one thing, I suppose, for a disciplinary tribunal to say that, um, you know, um, your, your conduct is unbecoming of your profession because what you have said is, you know, well, inaccurate or misleading. While you, even those two words are a little bit um, borderline, I suppose, just for a disciplinary tribunal to take action on. Um, but the third one, uh, you know, that they what what she what she said in the videos was inappropriate. I think should all should should have us actually, um, you know, this cause for some alarm amongst us. Yeah, you know, um, and, and the other aspect of it is that the, the videos were played apparently before the tribunal um, yesterday, um, and. The the lawyers for the uh, for the the party that's prosecuting uh, here, the doctor, uh, argued that the videos contained and uh, wait for it, you know what word I'm going to say, don't you? Disinformation. Oh, yeah, dis disinformation. And attending the hearing as an expert was uh, Doctor Sanjana had a had a had a toa, who is from the disinformation project. Um, so he turned up and, um, you know, he might be an expert in, uh, in inverted commas disinformation, but I think to be an expert in disinformation on a science matter of science or, or, or medicine, I would have thought you'd have to have some scientific or medical background and know that the information that is being said by here by Dr. Bailey is in fact you know, intentionally wrong. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know um, how, what what Dr. Hedato's uh, uh, um, background is in terms of medicine or science, but, you know, I think we're actually getting into dangerous territory where we have um, someone else giving expert uh, evidence that comments made in relation to medicine or science, uh, is disinformation. Well, he's described in the story, and this just could be the journalist's spin, but this does have a kind of medical sound to it, information disorders researchers, like it's some sort of personality, what, disorder or behavioural thing that he's an expert on, information disorders researcher. That's a new one on me, i got to say. 
Me too. Um, and uh, I've not heard that, that term before uh, either. Uh, so I, I guess I guess I guess what he's saying here uh, is that um, Dr. Bailey has a has a disorder uh, within her uh, brain or her psychological makeup, I suppose, uh, and that disorder is um, spreading, you know, information that that is wrong. Um, so anyway, I guess look, um, you know, uh, information disorder. So goodness. Um, can you get a diagnosis, I suppose, from a doctor of, of having a, a, an information disorder? Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. But where does it sort of tell us, I mean, uh, we're here to talk legal, obviously, but where does it tell us where we're at? They, these seem to be comical. They have a comical element. Um, I guess to an extent, but on the on the other hand, you know, a disciplinary tribunal is entitled to, you know, uh, roll the dice and take its chances. Okay, so, I mean, I know, you know, from my, our lawyers' um, law society complaint system, uh, we have uh, a whole bunch of rules and uh, in, in, uh, in the regulations to the Lawyers and Conveyances Act, uh, and, and these all sort of regulate how we must behave, what we can do and can't do, how we must follow, you know, our undertakings and. All, all, all sorts of stuff um, must be polite and courteous to fellow practitioners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, look, if if um, if the uh, a member of the public or somebody, you know, a, a client or another lawyer or anybody thought that, you know, I breached Rule 5.6 and they're entitled to say, I think Nick has, you know, breached Rule 5.6 or whatever, I'll make a complaint. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not the arbiter of that. All I'm saying is that I think he has. Uh, so I'll make the complaint, and we'll let the tribunal decide if, if he has or not. And so, from one aspect of you know, as I say, the um, the pure lawyer in me says, well, the tribunal, the, the medical society, or the prosecuting authority here uh, is entitled to 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 try its luck, you know, uh, on this stuff. Um, I, I don't know who specific, or say, Dr. Bailey's or or the doctor's specific um, uh, code of oath or rules that that she's. Uh, you know, obliged to um, play under, I suppose, um, and which 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 ones are alleged to have been um, kind of breached. But you know, if we if we're if we're talking here about words such as "oh, it's just inappropriate," you know, um, that's sort of what she said, or it's it, it's inaccurate. Well, is is there a threshold? By which we say, well, how inaccurate was it? Let's say it was 98, 95% accurate, but 5% was inaccurate. So does that 5% make it inaccurate and therefore she should be held liable for that, you know, thing? So I don't know. I mean, they're told to take the charge. I, I just I just think that it's a bit of a shame that uh, that she's not defending it. Um, I, I'd like to see, you know, we just talked about uh, Dr. Goodwin, who, who has not only defended uh, her charges, but then appealed the original decision, and she's got away with it, and she's won the appeal. So I, I just think it's a shame she's not testing this, uh, because we need, you know, in terms of a legal system, uh, we all need a legal system that gets tested, and we need, uh, you know, we need um, arguments made on both sides, and we need decisions appealed, so we can set a framework um, uh, under a rule of law system which we can all abide by. That you know, we can be sure has set proper rulings and decisions and judgments, and we're not going to get that here, unfortunately. Well, I hope she gets help for that information disorder. 
because it, they could they could um, they could be a problem right through life. Well, there might there might be a vaccine you can take for it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> okay, well that was um, that was an interesting legal hub. Thank you, Nick, for uh, getting us through uh, the program uh, this week. Hopefully, we'll have Katie back next week. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday. Yeah, just uh, yeah, before I go, Paul, I just wanted to, to uh, let listeners know that next week we are looking at having um, uh, the whole session dedicated uh, to the uh, New Zealand doctors speaking uh, out with science into DSOS. Um, we're trying to get uh, one of the doctors on the, sh- on the show to discuss uh, these matters we've just discussed tonight, uh, but other other legal issues in respect of um, of uh, you know the the medical. Um, society at the moment in general. So that's what we're looking to do um, uh, next week, having a special kind of show uh, for that. Oh, I'm looking forward to that already. That'll be great. Yeah, yeah. Think, and yeah so that, that's um, hopefully that'll come on. Okay, until then, we'll see you next Wednesday. Good, Paul. Have a good day. Bye, everyone. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.